The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Diabolic duos are what many true crime documentaries and horror movies are based on today. You never know who lurks in the shadows of the mask presented in public. Were these nice guys pretending to be murderers or murderers pretending to be nice guys? Either way, the plan sprouted and matured into a life of its own, becoming a dark passenger who joined them at night. From Click, Click, Click by Ann Varner and Karen Devaney. Welcome, Murder Bookies, to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am your host, Jill, and this is Episode 78, The Guilty Mind, Part 2, on Click, 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 by Ann Varner and Karen Devaney, part of the Say My Name series. This podcast features the best of the true crime books out there, updating the author's true crime story and adding my own insights and analysis. Frustratingly, many of us have no time to read, so I read for you. Trilogies, expect a new episode every two weeks on the book, and in between, you can leave a five-star review. (laughs) Okay. Holiday shopping has kicked in, so make the murder bookie in your life happy. New winter and Christmas designs are out in my merch store on Spreadshop. And it's not just t-shirts, but teddy bears, kitties, baby clothes, hoodies, workout clothes, water bottles, Christmas ornaments. Links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com on X or Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And watch for some sale notifications. I'm sure a few of those are coming too. In our previous episode 77, Hometown Murder, we see Mike Jervy and Fred Green conspire to murder someone, anyone, a target taken from their hit list, composed of classmates, friends, even a girlfriend who angered or crossed them, as part of their overall mission to become underworld mob bosses. I kid you not. After much debate, 17-year-old Raymond Trent Whitley was the chosen target. A son, a brother, a good friend, overall great kid, Trent simply went missing the night of February 23, 1990. His family was thrown into despair and tortured with uncertainty. Eventually, police delved into the case, but nothing substantial came from it. Three teens who were to party with Trent that night would remain suspects for years, upending their lives, causing much pain and scrutiny. But these young men were not the killers. More basketball practice helped Mike Jervy to put the execution of the plan behind him, as murder haunted his dreams less and less often. Mike had focused on how he and Fred Green had pulled off the perfect murder. Now they began to focus on how to capitalize on pulling off this perfect murder to gain the credibility they needed to establish their underworld kingdom while maintaining the secret as the whole town continued to search for Trent. 
Fred and Mike volunteered to post missing persons flyers, never actually going through with it. Geez, what is worse than posting flyers or making out like they're helping to post flyers? I don't know. They're just so terrible. They commented to other students that they'd seen them at the vigil while never actually attending one. They avoided the many news articles with Mrs. Whitley's theories contained within. But one reporter dogged Mike, and she was relentless, trying to sniff out clues as to what had happened. About a month after Trent's disappearance, the reporter heard that Trent was going to meet with Mike and Fred that night. Calling Mike, she had a zillion questions. Why were they meeting? Was Mike sure he hadn't seen Trent that Friday? What was the plan for afterwards? Good Lord, she asked what the plan was, but with the small T and P, not the capital letters. Mike stuck to the plan with the capital T and P this time, repeating the story he and Fred had concocted. Immediately thereafter, Mike called Fred, who told him to voluntarily go to the police and repeat the story. Obeying, Mike drove his car, no longer invisible in his mind, to the police station. On the outside, Mike seemed calm and eager to assist. Inside, he was a panicking mess, knowing the telltale bloodstains would be tracked back to Trent, and they were in the trunk of his car, parked outside in the lot. He explained about being supposed to meet Trent and that he wanted to get this on the record. The police welcomed him with open arms, believing Mike was an upstanding, decent citizen, because all of the juries were that. Karen and Ann wonder, if the police had pushed a little bit, would Mike have begun to sweat? If they had just pressed him, would Mike have collapsed like a house of cards and confessed? I agree with them. I think he might have. Mike would later admit that he did wrestle with how to confess without implicating Fred. Later that same day, Fred stopped by the police station and the story he told did not match Mike's. Red flag, right? Well, nevertheless, the officer never questioned him or Mike further. After all, Fred's best friend was that good young man, Jervy, whose family were such good Franklin citizens. And all the while, quote, affluence and connections through friendship protected two cold-blooded executioners. The high of fooling the investigators distracted Mike from the detour Fred took from the rehearsed story of the plan. But a seed of doubt was planted, end quote. So did you notice that? Fred deviated from the plan, from the script that they had rehearsed a hundred times. Gee, why would he do that? Well, their secret was safe and they were confident. They felt they had power to establish their organized crime network in Franklin. Their joke? The town was in their clutches, and no one was the wiser. They are completely delusional. Fred's street smarts, combined with Mike's family connections, had built them a shelter of protection. And all this as Trent's family lived with anguish and not knowing each and every day what had happened. For the killers, life was running the streets and partying at will. But Fred deviated from the plan. It gnawed at Mike, disturbed him. He began considering the reasons, wondering if these two partners were not on the same page. 
paranoia kicked in, and it would never really quite leave Mike again. When it was quiet, the paranoia would rear its ugly head, reminding him he was never safe, never secure, and that this secret murder would always be part of his reality. At these times, he'd have flashbacks. Bang! The gun blast. Blood spatter. Thud of the body hitting the ground. The stench. Brain bits clinging to his clothes and hair. Guilt rode with Mike. He could never betray Fred. Nor could he let his family know what a horrible person he was. He knew they were watching him, too, as were other people. His head and images swirling around were as invisible as his see-through car with the waves of blood. They were all out to get him. Mike knew it. Spring brought senior prom, and Mike went, and he attended all the parties associated with this coming of age. His family's cabin proved to be an important location. It was the ideally secluded place, making it easy for Mike and his underage friends to hang out and party, causing a surge in Mike's social popularity. Simultaneously, he and Fred felt the power that they had acquired, burning like an ember in their pockets. There was no way around it. If they didn't at least hint at having killed someone, well, what was the good? They decided to keep it just between their boys, the recruitables that they had identified, but no girls. They would spare them from the evil they unleashed. Or maybe they just thought girls couldn't keep secrets. Throughout that summer, Fred and Mike dropped hints as to what they'd done, and the more alcohol flowed, the more hints were forthcoming. Once, Fred told his younger brother, then he told his brother's friends, who he knew were very impressed, as he and Mike basked in their newfound infamy. They created an initiation into the boys, telling them what they'd done, and then swearing them to secrecy. Fred, who usually carried a handgun, boasted that this was the gun that killed, quote, the kid who went missing, end quote. Add, they terrorized those now in the know into silence. Was this silence loyalty or just disbelief? Not one person who had been told the truth came forward, and at least 10 teens were later verified to know. Now that terrifies me. I believe this is somewhat connected to something called the bystander effect. If you are familiar with it, it has undergone some new research in recent years, but the concept is, when in contact with a person, perhaps unconscious, who is needing assistance, in a crowded situation, no one is going to act, likely walking right past the person needing help. This will continue until the first person acts. To keep this short and sweet, the reasoning is, I'm sure someone will call to report this. I don't need to do that. Gee, I'm not sure what's happening here. Someone will figure it out. What if they're just joking? I'm going to look stupid. I'll get in trouble with my parents and the police if I report something and it's not true. And what if Fred is serious and he comes after me, with everyone diffusing their social responsibility for each other? Now, the catch is, I have enlightened you. You know that this is going to happen. You know that this is social psychology. So the next time that you find yourself in this situation, you know 
that no one is going to do anything and that no one has called 911 already and that you have to be that first person to act. This actually happened to me in Penn Station, New York City. I was exiting up the escalators going into Madison Square Garden on my way to see a Broadway play when a woman tripped and fell flat on her face and everything she was carrying flew all over the place as everyone just walked past her, around her, stepping over her things. But I knew it was my job as a decent person and citizen, so I stopped, I helped her up, I gave her a Band-Aid from my purse. Hey, I'm a mom, I carry Band-Aids. I helped her retrieve her parcels, and I ensured she was back on her feet, and we parted. Turns out I was late for the play, but all in all, I felt really good about acting to help her. In this case, we're talking about teenagers diffusing social responsibility, and they moved on. What is even a more troubling question that Karen and Anne ask, had any of these students told their parents? And what of the teacher who heard this? The adult in the room? Yeah, the teacher with additional responsibility there, who plainly failed to say anything to. For weeks, Mike and Fred partied and bragged about the murder as the summer came to a close. Mike's thoughts still lingered back. Why, oh why, hadn't Fred gone with the story they rehearsed a zillion times when he spoke to police? The paranoia was relentless. Mike may have factored this obsessive thought into his decision-making when he decided to go to the University of Georgia, which was far enough away from home and from Fred. Now, Fred, he was attending the Virginia Military Institute of Lexington, VA. That stopped my heart. Fred in the military. What havoc and destruction could he unleash there? At the University of Georgia, Mike believed he'd escaped the plan that living away from home would be salvation, and he attempted to do so blending in as one of the typical freshmen, socializing galore, attending class a little, and studying occasionally. But he couldn't make it work. Using drugs to self-medicate, equilibrium largely escaped him. After freshman year, his grades were so bad he left the university. He would fantasize about running away to a remote island somewhere, but the truth was he couldn't ever run away from the plan. Back in Franklin, he was utterly defeated. He began delivering pizza, continuing to distract himself from himself. You'd find him playing video games or delivering pies. Oh, and he still had the same car with the blood-stained trunk. He couldn't face cleaning it. He couldn't face selling it. Lord, no, someone would open the trunk and see the bloodstains. And he never opened that trunk. He refused to use the car. He was torturing himself. After a year at home, his family decided it was time to try college again, and the University of Georgia was willing to take him back because he still came from that stellar family with the great reputation, blah, 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 blah. Campus was beautiful as ever, but Mike's head game hadn't changed. Quote, the unstable ground could open from beneath him at any time, sucking him into a bottomless free fall forever. The signs constantly pointed to everyone knowing, end quote. 
That is knowing his dark secret, that he'd helped kill Trent. Now, he and Fred hadn't kept the secret, so he wondered how many others had actually been told. To stem his racing, fierceful, paranoid mind, he continued recreational drugs. On the surface, he was the same old Mike. After imbibing, if he was complimented, he would respond that he was an evil asshole. If no one took him seriously, quote, he would divulge a general piece of his secret, explaining he participated in a foul thing in high school and was a very bad person, end quote. Most still refused to believe him, yet he believed everyone saw through him. Carrying this demon around with him was exhausting and relentless. One night back in Franklin, he and some friends were watching the film The Wall, a psychological drama involving a boy coping with his father's death and drug-induced hallucinations. The boy grows into a man, and he gradually loses touch with reality, building a mental and figurative wall to protect himself. Mike's paranoia shot through the roof. He just knew everyone was sending him a message via the movie. They knew about the execution of Trent, and he got up and left the room. Continuing to struggle psychologically, Mike called Fred, sharing his inner demons. Fred was entirely sympathetic, lending an ear, showing support. No, hell no, Fred didn't do that at all. Fred bluntly told him to lay off the drugs, straighten out his act, and forget what they had achieved. Fred was now focused on his military career, excelling at VMI, and appreciating the tough discipline, and he would not let Mike screw up his achieving his dream. There was just way too much at stake for one of them to go off the deep end. Mike was becoming a liability. The problem was, Mike's solo route to get it together meant confession, as shame and despair flooded him. Once again, Mike was failing out of school and his mental stability hanging by a thread. I need to hit pause here for a minute. This story that Mike is telling about his torment is told from years hindsight, and I believe that he is shading so that we are all more sympathetic to what he went through at the time of the murder and afterwards, what he suffered, and is not concerned at all about the suffering of the Whitleys. In all frankness, I never sympathize with the murderer unless we are discussing an abused childhood before the killer emerged. No such thing happened here. Mike's tale, he is factual, he is accurate, he is forthcoming about the steps taken to kill Trent and disposing the body. In my opinion, Mike Derby is a cold-blooded narcissist. He is deliberately presenting himself in a sympathetic light. Poor me, I was so guilt-ridden. He didn't sympathize with his mother after his father's sudden death, leaving her a single mom coping and struggling. Nope. Mike was only concerned about himself. He exhibited anger and that the family conspiracy kept him in the dark. That's why he was angry. It was all about him, what he was denied. He didn't try to make life easier for his mom. He tormented that poor woman. It was 17 months later that he and Fred killed Trent, which means there was a relatively short time frame after his dad's death and before he and Fred launched into the Assassin's Creed mode. 
we sometimes look back and try to determine triggers, what set him off, and here we can see it clearly. Why I can sympathize with a teenager who lost his father, the murdering narcissist gets not one iota. Recall that right before the murder, Mike whispers to Fred that they should do it so they can get out of here. This struck me. Mike meant that. This is truthful and it is insightful. Let's do this. I believe Mike was full in, acting side by side with Fred, and is not some patsy going along under some malignant entity's influence. Mike Jervy revealed himself in that. Psychopath? No. Cold-blooded, selfish, narcissistic killer? Yes. While Mike couldn't go back home, it would be unbearable. Convincing his mom, he opted to go to summer school so he could figure out what was next. If he went to the police and confessed, he'd betray Fred, and that was simply not possible, even if their bond was eroding and he no longer trusted Fred. They were living very different lives now. Fred was enjoying his success at VMI and received several accolades. Mike's anxiety was becoming a serious liability, and he was struggling with depression, fear, and the sharp paranoia. Suicide was not an option because his dad was watching him from heaven and he knew he'd never see him again if he did. Turning himself in would embarrass and disgrace his family and he hated the idea of prison. Summer school finished. On returning home, Mike had made a decision and had an important announcement. He was dropping out of college, leaving Franklin, and cutting off all ties with the family. He'd packed up what he could and tossed it into the back seat, not the trunk, of his car, and he would leave. And I'm sure this went over well, right? No. But Mike is in avoidance mode. Avoid the farm where Trent was buried, avoid seeing the crime scene, avoid Fred, and avoid his family. His family did not understand. What was he thinking? Why would he do this? And the more they probed, the more Mike's decision became trenched. Fred accepted what Mike told him, but Mike saw, or thought he saw, more cracks in the cement of their bond. Was Fred's confidence in Mike waning? Whatever Mike did, it was wrong, and he continued to spiral downward, engulfed in morbid imagery in his dreams. By summer 1992, Fred knew Mike was losing control. Hoping a little buddy time would brace up his confidence, Fred rented a movie. Back in those days when there were video store rentals of films? This one was Apocalypse Now. Set during the Vietnam War, it was 1968. A rogue Colonel Kurtz was off the rails, creating destruction in his wake. A special forces captain is sent to terminate the colonel before the situation became any worse. But dealing with PTSD of his own, the captain winds up joining Kurtz and his crazies. Filled with drugs and wanton violence, it's a pretty gruesome film. Fred is watching this with Mike. Like, what could go wrong? Already paranoid, doubtful, Mike now knew Fred was sending him a message via the film. Predictable, since he'd already gone there with another group of friends when watching the Wall movie, right? Watching the film's violence. Mike hallucinated imagery from the murder, morphing them into one. Movie gunfire triggered the bang that killed Trent. 
every dead body had Trent's face. Message to Mike from Fred. Mike, you are spiraling, and I, Fred, need to terminate you. Driving Mike home after the movie, discussing the film, Fred told Mike that he was definitely the special forces captain sent to exterminate the unhinged spiraling colonel. And Mike saw that he was Kurtz, the target. Going inside his house, Mike heard Trent's voice in his memory. Quote, maybe we can work something out, followed by Fred's hollow answer. It's too late for that now. End quote. Reading along, I could see Mike and Fred feeding off each other's deluded, deadly thinking, repeating it as they plotted, executed, and lived in the aftermath. Fred definitely engages in delusions of grandeur, craving power, respect for being the baddest gangster in Franklin. Based on my 30 years of experience in psychology education, Fred exhibits psychopathy. He has no remorse whatsoever, callous, he lacks empathy, and he never thinks of the Whitleys and what he's taken from them, that he's stolen Trent's young life. This is crystal clear when he robbed Trent's dead body. Fred relishes the plan, enjoys the power. He is steady on his feet and supremely confident, glibly walking into the crowded gym wearing the victim's hat and glasses. Now he sees Mike mentally falling apart, zero coping skills. Was Mike actually right? Had Fred considered taking Mike out to ensure he would never be tied to Trent's murder? I think he may have considered it, and worse, I think he may have done it if the opportunity presented itself. Murder Bookies, what do you think about this? Email me at jill at com or find me on social media. Rolling this conversation from the drive home that night over and over in his mind for weeks, obsessing, Mike finally found the courage to talk to Fred, trying to be casual, saying that they'd committed the perfect crime. Fred disagreed. No, no. The perfect crime would be murdering someone and framing someone else for it. Now, this did nothing to ease Mike's already tormented, doubtful mind, and he realized he was in Fred's sights. The shift to survival mode came quickly. Mike avoided Fred at all costs. He needed to disappear. With the family turmoil still rolling, Mike would pack after the summer and move to Georgia and stopped all contact with his family. He planned one final outing with his friends at their beach house. With little choice, the family agreed to let him have this time at the beach house and hoping he'd have time to cool off and with luck, Mike would come to his senses. But Fred planned to be there too. Mike intended to tell Fred that he was leaving, never to return, burying their secret forever. Maybe Fred would accept this and no longer view Mike as a danger to him. But his anxiety and paranoia wouldn't ease its grasp on his mind. Stalling, Mike kept hemming and hawing, with Fred pressuring him to go to the beach, go to the beach, offering to drive Mike himself. It was left up in the air. Then Fred and his younger brother arrived at Mike's unannounced, saying they were all going to the beach and Mike should get packed. Alerts were sent off in Mike's brain. Why had Fred brought a third party? They never socialized as a trio. 
as the hair on Mike's neck rose. Fred was going to kill him and dump the body in some remote place. Survival mode, Mike fled to another friend's home, supposedly to play video games, with Mike refusing to leave there until Fred and his brother gave up and left. The next day, Mike found himself at the family's farm, where one of his brothers, called Farmer in the book, was working. Feeling unbearable fear, ill at ease, Mike knew that Trent's body was right there. Suddenly, Farmer got sick of Mike's attitude and they began to argue. Mike sucked and his plan to leave sucked even more. How could he be so immature and uncaring? Did he enjoy tormenting Mom? He treated her like crap after Dad died. Quote, Mike was a spoiled brat and it was time for him to mature into a man. He wanted Mike to go to the beach for sun and fun with his friends and return ready to live life like a responsible adult. As Mike was ready to leave, Farmer mentioned he was planning to move his wife and daughters to the farm to live temporarily in the hunting cabin, and these words stung Mike. End quote. Frozen in dread, oh my God, what if his nieces accidentally stumbled upon Trent's body buried in the yard? They'd be scarred for life. What if Farmer was blamed for his death? What if Farmer went to prison? Mike threw down and demanded that Farmer and his family not move to the cabin because Trent Whitley was buried there in a shallow, unmarked grave. I can't imagine the expression on Farmer's face processing that statement. Mike continued on. He knew because he put Trent there. He'd killed Trent with Fred back in February 1990 as the dam burst and the plan came stumbling out, unburdening himself finally. Farmer's silence gave way to bafflement, fear, and disbelief. Why the hell? By confessing, Mike felt downright giddy, relieved, the weight of the plan lifting. He'd go to the beach tomorrow, leaving Farmer to deal with the revelation, running from responsibility for the murder again. He actually felt hopeful for the future for the first time in years. Mike even thought that Farmer would help him. His reality completely warped. Well, Farmer did not help him pack or anything else, himself unsteady, and he adamantly refused to let Mike go to the beach. He had to stay in Franklin and do the right thing. Mike didn't seem to get it, asking Farmer to never, ever tell their, quote, do right, end quote, brother, the one with the even stricter moral code. Farmer gave Mike a choice. He could tell do right himself, or Farmer would. Instead, Mike jumped in his car. He told Farmer to stay silent until after he partied, packed, and left. And then he could tell do right, literally running away. Off Mike went to get ready for a beach party and his departure from Franklin. Life was good again. He was free of the plan and the darkness. Feeling lighter, he was excited. His new plan seemed to be working out. He might make it. He is completely delusional. All of this was dashed on the rocks when Mike got home around 2 a.m. and he saw Farmer and Do-Right's cars parked in his mother's driveway. Oh, shit. 
Going inside, the brothers were quietly waiting at the kitchen table. Mom was still upstairs asleep. Quote, from the look in their eyes, his grandmaster plan dissolved like seltzer tablets dropped into a glass of water. End quote. Dreading facing these two, he sat down, and by dawn, a new plan had been forged. After phone calls, it was hurry up and wait, and the silence was oppressive. The brothers woke up mom and gently broke the news to her, explaining the new plan, and she needed to be on board. Then, in the middle of this, Fred called, eager to see Mike. Come on, hurry up, let's go to the beach party. Mike vacillated, and Fred became gloomy, hurt that he was losing his best friend. Mike tried to calm him, but inadvertently confirmed Fred's suspicions. Now down at the police station, Mike hugged his brothers and mother, his feet heavy as if anvils were attached to them. He talked for hours, sharing all the sordid details, the planning, the rehearsal, scoping out locations, the murder, concealment, and the alibis. The final task was taking law enforcement to recover Trent's body out at the farm. Thirty months had passed since they enacted the plan, and given Mike's shock at the time when he was mentally compromised, he was now not a hundred percent sure where they had moved Trent's body on that beautiful, cool Sunday in February. Quickly, the investigators found the first ditch that Fred had dug, but finding Trent's exact resting place was more difficult. Over a week later, the team of investigators were utterly desperate to reunite Trent with his grief-stricken family. Labor Day weekend came and went. They took time off to regroup and recharge their batteries. The lead detective was beyond frustrated, and he called a specialist, Professor Bill Bass, a forensic anthropologist from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Back in 1980, Bass founded the first anthropological research facility where the decomposition of human remains was studied. You may know this as the body farm. Professor Bass provided useful suggestions, including to partner with a local botanist who would be knowledgeable of the flora and fauna in the area. A professor from the Paul D. Camp Community College in Franklin was contacted. Yeah, that's Camp Community College, the same one founded by Franklin's founding fathers, the Camps. The next day, the botanist arrived at the Jervie family farm and within two hours had identified a viable search area. Digging began and didn't take long to find the body of Raymond Trent Whitley, which was carefully excavated from the grave that had held his remains for over two years. His body was not in good shape, but investigators also found his wallet, driver's license, and a gold chain he was known to wear. There was no elation, as the Whitleys still had to be informed. They'd all grown close in the months since Trent's disappearance, and while knowing Trent had been found, his family would know for certain that Trent was gone forever. Dental records would positively identify his remains, and Mrs. Whitley would say, quote, We kind of reconciled ourselves this past year that he was not alive, but you never give up hope, hope that it would not turn out like this, end quote. As the truth came out, painful relief was the communal response. From the first, the Jervies received death threats 
with Mike being put into protective custody. On August 16, 1992, police spoke to Dr. Norman Thornton, father of Fred's ex-girlfriend Heather, about his 357 Magnum. He confirmed it was missing, and it was later located at the apartment Fred shared with his mother. With extreme security measures necessary, Mike and Fred could not be tried together. It was just too dangerous for them to both be in the same courtroom. Fred was charged with first-degree murder, robbery, and the use of a firearm. Mike was charged with first-degree murder and a firearms violation. November 24, 1992, found Fred in court accepting a plea deal his attorneys, Greg Neskin and Martin A. Thomas, had negotiated with District Attorney Richard G. Grizzard. Admitting to murdering Trent Whitley, the death penalty was off the table. Judge William R. Morse, Jr., sentenced Frederick West Green to life in prison plus 62 years. Mike was next. Because he had confessed to the crime and assisted police in the recovery of Trent's remains, he was offered a plea deal that reduced his time in prison. He received 30 years in prison for the murder and firearms charges. According to Virginia's attorney, Richard Grizzard, Green will serve at least 25 years and Jervy is eligible for parole in five years and two months. Yeah, I wanted to throw up. Five years? Five years. At sentencing, Fred Green said to the Whitleys that he was sorry, quote, for the pain and the anguish I have caused. I truly am very sorry, end quote. Mike Jervy said, quote, the past two and a half years have been the hardest years of my life. I wish there was something I could do to ease the pain, end quote. As a nonviolent person, it would have taken Herculean efforts for me to restrain myself. Mike's two and a half years were hard. He said the guilt over the crime had proved unbearable, which was why he confessed. Mrs. Whitley responded to the Daily Press saying, quote, At this stage of the game, it's a little hard to swallow. I hope they're sincere, but I'm not sure I believe them. End quote. I agree with Mrs. Whitley. I do not believe Fred, other than he's sorry Mike caved and they got caught. In the book, Karen and Ann share that there is a full transcript of Fred's trial, but mysteriously, there is no transcript for Mike, not of the plea deal or statements to the court. The DA chose not to submit Mike's police station confession, instead including an evidentiary summary. Further, there is no transcript of Mike's taped confession or apology made to the family and community. I have never, ever heard of a case where the prosecution did not present a valid murder confession on the record. It is bizarre. I know what I think. Affluenza strikes. This was deliberate. It was designed to protect an influential family from humiliation and embarrassment. It is shameful, and I find it outrageous. What about those who Mike and Fred told that they'd killed Trent? After the proceedings, D.A. Grizzard said that those who knew about the crime were mostly 16 and 17 years old and didn't come forward for fear of reprisals from Fred Green, 
They claimed Green had issued threats if anyone told about the murder. They testified that Fred told them of Trent's murder a few times and Mike at least once. Further, Fred's younger brother said that Fred had displayed the murder weapon to them. These bystander witnesses weren't charged because there's no law in Virginia against knowing about a crime and not coming forward. What about a person's conscience, morality, decency, empathy? I was first a student of the Holocaust. Then I took additional courses, wrote research papers, traveled to Europe to death and concentration camps, and listened to Holocaust survivors. I then began teaching other teachers how to address this subject with their students, and I wrote curriculum for the New Jersey Holocaust Commission. So it is ingrained in my DNA not to be a bystander, but to be an upstander, to stand up for those who cannot, who need help, who are rendered silent, like their friend Trent Whitley. It is a lot more than my pet peeve when people know about something this horrendous and they don't lift a finger to call Crime Stoppers anonymously. No one says go out and be a vigilante and bring Fred in yourself. Of course not. But for heaven's sakes, grow a pair and speak up if you know something. If remaining silent when terrible things are happening is your chosen path, this is not okay with me. Judgy? Hey, I will listen. But yeah, I'm probably judgy. And guess who agrees with me? Here it comes. Back in 1992, the Reverend Ira D. Tuck Hudgens ministered at the Franklin Baptist Church. A month after Mike confessed to the police, and hundreds were in attendance of Trent Whitley's funeral, Reverend Hudgens had a few words to say, quoting from the Roanoke Times, quote, We are all guilty for creating the kind of climate in which this thing can happen, Hudgens said. He criticized those who had maintained the code of silence that prolonged the family's agony. To stand mute in the face of such horrible crimes makes those who keep quiet as guilty as those who perpetrated the crime. End quote. Now keep in mind, a Franklin High School teacher also stayed silent. This is not a teenager, but an adult with full-grown frontal lobes responsible for teaching teenagers. But the law is the law, and no charges could be filed against those who knew but kept mute. Reverend Hudgens also described Trent, quote, a friendly young man whose infectious laugh brightened many a day, a dutiful and loving son, a man of promise, end quote. How much Trent would have achieved, we can never know. It is such a terrible loss. Truly a kind woman, Mrs. Whitley expressed sympathy for the Green and Jervy families, who also never expected to be involved in a homicide. The press did not report their statements about their convicted sons, then age 20 and 21. Today in Franklin, when residents speak of the three boys, it is in hushed whispers so as not to offend anyone. It's a common practice for high school yearbooks to dedicate a page to a lost classmate or faculty member. That did not happen in Trent's case, the code of silence on display in its absence. Karen and Anne explain that they did not write click, click, click to disparage their hometown. 
Rather, these ladies' hearts are in the right place. They are honoring Trent's lost life. Researching as they wrote the manuscript, they dug down deep, wanting to know more about Trent's life and the young man that he was. Many they spoke to recalled sensationalized stories and rumors, mostly about the confession and plea deal. No one was willing to speak about Trent, perhaps from fear, community loyalty, or allegiance to the families of the killers. Resolved to tell the story of the victim, they adopted a neutral tone, aware that Trent's family is still living in town as well. Being the Sugar-Coated Murder podcast, they made gooey brownies that episode, comfort food, to help speak the truth and tell the tale. They have great affection for their hometown and have wonderful memories growing up there, some of which I've shared with you. One homicidal act does not define Franklin or the community. It was and continues to be a great place to grow up and raise a family. Hence, the disbelief and shock when the events were revealed. Murder has a ripple effect marking generations, not just the perpetrator and victims. Where did the book idea come from? Well, on August 21st, 2021, the ladies received an email from Discovery Plus Network who had clearly listened to their Trent Whitley episode with a proposition to do a program on this true crime story. All right, I would have fainted right there. And then in marvelous true crime fashion, Karen and Anne checked to see if the emailer was legit. And she was. Bowled over, Karen and Anne began discussion and dove deeper into research, going back to Franklin, networking with people more closely involved in Trent's case. However, the Discovery Plus project was not to be for mutually agreed reasons. I think it's unfortunate, but a slow-burning fire was ignited in these podcasters. Trent's story needed to be told. Quote, we press to recount his story in the best way to honor him, end quote. And this is also why I wanted to feature Click, Click, Click on my True Crime Book Club podcast to honor Trent as well to say his name right along with Karen Varner and Anne Devaney. But it doesn't end here. 30 days after the email from Discovery Plus, another email arrived. This listener appreciated the way the women stuck to the facts of the case, not interjecting their opinions, especially regarding his family. It was from Mike Jervy. He also agreed. Trent's memory had not been kept alive in town, and Mike offered to share his insights on his case. And of course, the ladies agreed to talk. Using a burner phone, taking precautions, they began speaking to him. They told no one of these conversations. Quote, Picture two small-town 50-blank-year-old broads on a super-secret spy mission, but totally afraid kind of like the Golden Girls on a James Bond 007 pursuit, end quote. <laughs> I love the way they phrase things. But seriously, like, what was his agenda? Was he dangerous? They also felt that by now he had served his time, he had been punished according to the law, so they owed him no discrimination. And I can understand that balancing act. Emotion is not always logical and doesn't always follow the lead of the rational mind. They scoured the documents at the clerk of court office, getting copies of files, 
while discussing the case with those who recalled 1992. It was tough at first, but then they shared their surnames and the welcoming floodgates opened with information flowing freely. They belonged. They were part of the community. Next, they went to the high school looking for Trent's 11th and 12th grade yearbooks so they could see his groups of friends and get a sense of those high school years. The librarian recognized the ladies as homegrown gals, letting them borrow the yearbooks and return them by mail later. Using those insider connections, brilliant. They went to the location where Trent's car was found, meeting the investigator and one of Trent's brothers, both providing novel information and details to the questions that were asked. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it was an emotional meeting, ranging from sadness, anger, disbelief, shock, and sheer horror. Discussing murder is not easy, nor should it be. Revisiting dark days is intense and all too real, but they left even more convinced that they needed to tell Trent's story and end the rumors and speculation that still remained. He deserved to be more than a footnote to a legal proceeding. Then, the emailer wanted to meet face-to-face. Now, y'all might not realize that as suspicious true crime podcasters, we overthink and overprepare a lot, especially for a sit-down with a convicted killer. Karen and Ann asked a police officer for advice on how to proceed, and he advised, do not go. While they didn't listen, still not disclosing their activities with family and friends. So let's say a stranger emails you and says, hey, I'm a convicted murderer. Let's talk. Well, you know, we always tell people never to do this, especially the part about not telling friends where you're going and not texting them you've arrived okay and when you're expected home, right? Well, they wanted to know the story, and they did meet and were taken back into a small office. Nervously, they asked, quote, can you tell us about the night of Trent's murder, end quote. Almost five hours later, the conversation ended, and they thanked Mike and exited. In shock, in disbelief, they fell into a reflective silence, and about 15 minutes later, erupted in squeals of like, oh my God, what did we do? Pausing for some hydration and sustenance, they drove to their Airbnb and unpacked what they had been told, taking notes and gabbed into the wee hours of the morning. But a problem arose. They had no idea how to write a book. So enter Amazon. They went and they bought several books on how to write a book. And after digesting all of that, they were concerned, well, can we write a book? Now, in talking with them, I referred them back to the Discovery Plus email, which complimented them on being wonderful storytellers. Buff that confidence. Determined, they headed off to an isolated retreat in the mountains of North Carolina. Fun fact, it's not far from where Dirty Dancing was filmed. And surprise, this particular inn was also renowned for its ghost and poltergeist. Perfect environment. Nothing like heavy breathing from an invisible specter waking you up at 3 a.m. So, by dinner time, they began to write, scratching out a mere 10,000 words. 
They were so naive thinking that they'd emerge four days later with a full manuscript. Well, that did not happen. It is much harder than you think. Putting together a more realistic schedule, the words began to flow, and they believe that they were guided by Trent's presence. And that was the beginning of the Say My Name series, book one, Click, Click, Click. Quote, We wrote Trent's story because we wanted to give Trent his moment. He deserved the happy graduation from high school with the pomp and circumstance. He was popular, a grade-A student. He was due to date girls and maybe get married and enjoy the experience of babies. He merited happy birthday celebrations, Christmases, Easters, hunting, fishing, all the joys that life has to offer. We are the sisters who wanted to shower him with the recognition and remembrance he never received. Mr. and Mrs. Whitley's son waited in a lone, cold grave through the springs and winters, summers and falls to be found and laid to rest by his adoring parents and brothers. He now rests next to his mom, who passed away after these events. He is also joined in heaven by one of his older brothers. We are sure they are together as they should be. How could such a sweet, deserving boy get forgotten in his own murder? We wanted to change the outcome. Please, as you finish this book, take a moment and say his name. Raymond Trent Whitley. End quote. I'm sorry. I swore I wasn't going to do this. I am crying my eyes out here, as I was when I was putting this episode together. Well, I want to help change that outcome, too. And that's why I picked this book. Please read it for yourselves. Okay. And here comes the update. So, Mike Jervy probably served six years, and I can find nothing indicating he served more than that. I did find an article from 2017, totally unrelated to Trent's case. A woman named Laura Tarantino was arrested for possession of heroin back in 2007 and again in 2009 when she was 21 years old. She served 15 months and was released in 2010. At the time of this Washington Post article, Laura was clean, educated, established, happily married, and she was trying to get Virginia legislators to reduce the 10-year ban on those with felony convictions from adopting a child. So why do I mention this? Interviewed in this 2017 article is Mike Jervy. Cheering on Laura's efforts, he was now 45 years old and, quote, was released from prison a decade ago and is a life leader at his hometown church in Franklin, Virginia, end quote. Mike explained that at his church, he and his wife learned of a baby girl needing a home. They jumped at the chance to help, but Mike was not eligible due to his murder conviction. He told journalist Victoria St. Martin that, quote, you need to take a look at all types of criminal activity, but you also need to be able to understand when there's a time to give grace and look into things more deeply. Why can't that person, having done their time, not only be a productive member of society, but also adopt a child that's in desperate need? Why not be able to look individually so you can really examine what's going down? End quote. Now, at that time, the Derbys had legal custody of the baby, but couldn't adopt her. Well, that is a lot to think about, and I think maybe 
Maybe the Whitley should decide this one, because I'm struggling with it, to be frank. Nevertheless, it appears that Mike and his wife are rearing two children, and they seem to be a very happy family, and I honestly wish them luck. A Laura update as of 2021, she and her husband have two sons and seem to be thriving, and it does not appear that the ban on felony adoptions has been reduced in Virginia. From the research I did, Frederick West Green was paroled on May 11, 2019. I have no idea why I would never have let him out, given the cold-blooded, premeditated nature of this crime. Today he is 51 years old, and I pray he has learned his lesson. All right, another update. In last episode, I shared that back in 1978, W. Jack Smith, the Franklin jeweler, was shot to death after Willie Lloyd Turner tripped the alarm. He had fallen after the first shot, and then Willie stopped and shot him twice more in the chest. Convicted of Jack's murder, he would appeal and appeal and appeal for 15 years. Turner was scheduled for execution six times, receiving stays when his defense attorney filed another appeal on his behalf. In those earlier times, Willie would have been electrocuted. However, in January 1978, a choice was given of lethal injection or electrocution. Four more times, Willie was moved to the death house, where prisoners live in a cell next to the execution chamber, with execution as little as two weeks away. His final appeal was based on living 15 years on death row, which was psychological torture and thus unconstitutional, as it violated the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. This was rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court, with only Justice John Paul Stevens dissenting. A New York Times article explains that the federal district court judge, James C. Kacharis, had ruled that the 15 years on death row had resulted from the defendant's litigiousness, amounting to at least 20 appeals, and, quote, it would be a strange twist of logic to reward a prisoner for repeated futile appeals, end quote. So this 15 years was not the state's doing. The Virginia Attorney General's office, quote, estimated that the case had consumed 10 to 15 percent of a state lawyer's time for 15 years, end quote. And on May 25, 1995, Willie Turner opted for lethal injection and was executed at the Greenfield Correction Center. Jack Smith's son, William Jackson Smith Jr., known as Billy, was there to watch his father's murderer die, a first in Virginia. Billy was the first murder victim's family member in modern times to be permitted to observe an execution, which shocked me. Like, why on earth would the family be banned to begin with? Karen and Ann tell me, that Smith jewelry is still a staple in Franklin. Jack Smith. Jack Smith was a good man, a decent man, a hardworking entrepreneur. His wife Betty was a nurse at a county hospital, and they both went to church where Jack sang in the choir. Jack and Betty Smith met when they were in college, him at Randolph-Macon, and she in nursing school. In 1948, they married and a decade later moved to Franklin with their two small children. After many years of hard work and striving, 
the jewelry store was flourishing, and Betty became chief of the hospital's 175-member nursing staff. And then Willie Turner intervened, committing cold-blooded murder. Years later, at age 35, Billy Smith commented on the execution, quote, I feel like a two-ton weight has been lifted off my shoulders. It ended a long chapter in my life, end quote. He and his wife and their two children began moving forward, living life the best they could to honor his dad. So many lives interrupted from such senseless violence. And that wraps up episode 78. In two weeks, I'll be sharing my interview and discussion with our authors, Ann Varner and Karen Devaney, episode 79, A Sugar-Coated Interview. I had a million questions as I was reading along in the book, so do not miss the inside story. And read their book, click, 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 and give the Sugar-Coated Murder podcast a chance. And a huge thanks to my Patreon members for helping select our next book, Frozen in Fear, A True Story of Surviving the Shadow of Death by Jane Carson Sandler. I had told you I met Jane at CrimeCon, and she is such a gracious, strong woman and a survivor. Jane eventually testified against her rapist-turned-killer, Golden State Killer Joseph D'Angelo. I also read She Survived, hyphen, Jane, by M. William Phillips and Jane Carson Sandler because I try to read as many books on a case as I can. And her story ripped my heart out while it renewed my spirit. Who knew that these things can happen simultaneously? So thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. I see you as you hear me. Please take a few minutes to leave an awesome review that will help me make new Murder Bookies. Share your thoughts with me at jillatmurdershelfbookclub.com or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. New winter designs are out on Spreadshop, so get your merch. The holidays are coming really fast. The links are on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com with my sources, photographs, show notes, our snack recipe, and wine pairing too. Always trust your gut. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena and lyrics by Otto Harbach.